You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the EU politics podcast. We've got another great episode for you this week. We're slowing down here in Brussels, but we're going to keep going strong with the podcast. I wanted to thank you for your support, and I hope that you can go ahead and review us or rate us wherever you found this podcast, and to keep sharing it with your friends and your colleagues. First up, we're talking to Mark Scott, who's Politico's new chief technology correspondent. We're going to talk to him about the dynamic in the tech world now, where these tech titans are having to confront the reality of regulation, that it's not the Wild West anymore. We're kind of moving from sort of the toddler to teenage phase of the internet, in which we've gone from sort of relatively naive friendly space to a place where unruly you want to play your loud music no one wants to listen to the parents and there is now a growing friction between what the internet and the digital world as we know it as it matures with public policy and politicians in the main interview for this week's episode we speak to Tarvit Henrikas who's an Estonian entrepreneur he founded Transferwise which is an online banking and currency exchange company and was one of the original founders of Skype He talks to us about the future of banking, where Estonia and the EU needs to go to stay competitive, and what it takes if you want to become an entrepreneur yourself. Your smartphone in your pocket will be the most important bank branch for the rest of your life. And, you know, we've kind of designed TransferWise for a generation of people for whom a smartphone or a computer is the only bank branch they care about. Then we bring in our Brussels Brains Trust. We've got the extraordinary performance this week of David Davis. We analyze what's really going on there and did he mean to look the way he did in the Brexit negotiations. And in our Dear Politico advice section, we talk to an MEP assistant who alleges that his member of parliament has asked to take a 1,000 euro a month cut of his salary as the price for getting the job. But let's start with Politico's new chief technology correspondent, Mark Scott. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. I can't think of a better person to have a chat with to get this podcast rolling because you're really going to be looking at the intersection of tech and politics throughout Europe, not just in Brussels. And we have seen yet another one of these press releases from the Commission this week and an event around 5G with price tags of potentially hundreds of billions attached to it, the EU claiming it's going to be investing billions. I don't think we're hearing the full story when we look at these press releases. Well, 5G is one of these words where everyone says it means something, but it really doesn't. It's sort of the Christmas present that never comes, because in the end, we don't really know what 5G is. People talk about how it's going to allow us to download movies in two seconds over on cell phones and computers can talk to each other, etc. But the nitty gritty is you need to invest in the network. And estimates vary, but we're looking at about 
three to five hundred billion just in Europe to make this work. And what the commission and industry need to figure out is who's going to pay for that. And eventually it's going to be us, the consumer. One of the other points that really sticks out in my mind is that the EU has gotten the point that it needs to have a strategy around these issues. You know, the thing in the back of the minds of EU officials is that they think they invented mobile networks, which is largely true via EU research funding 25, 30 years ago. They feel that other countries and non-European companies really got ahead of them on the next generations of the networks, 3G and 4G, and now they're determined we are going to be first on 5G. To be blunt, Europe isn't going to be first. AT&T and Verizon already have 5G trials going on in the States. When it comes to a broad rollout of 5G, it'll be Japan and South Korea first. Well, let's broaden it out a little bit now. We're obviously in this really interesting moment. That's why we're so glad to have you on the team, where tech is having to, you know, essentially get beyond this libertarian phase where it's the Wild West, you can do whatever you want. It's kind of crashing into this regulatory reality. And often it's the EU leading that regulation charge, for better or worse, not saying it works out all of the time. But you can really feel this clash of the titans coming on, has been for a while now. What's your take on that whole dynamic? It's really funny because the concept of the internet as we know it now has been around for about 30, 35 years. But in reality, we're kind of moving from sort of the toddler to teenage phase of the internet in which we've gone from sort of a relatively naive, friendly space to a place where unruly, you want to play your loud music, no one wants to listen to the parents. And there is now a growing friction between what the internet and the digital world as we know it, as it matures, with public policy and politicians realizing, well, hang on a minute, we might need to regulate this thing because all of a sudden our citizens are using and interacting with some of the big digital companies more than they are with ourselves. And right now, which is why I'm so excited to be here at Politico, is that that debate and that discussion is happening more and is having a more pronounced effect in Europe than anywhere else bar China for different political reasons. And is this just what every other industry has gone through as it goes through that maturing phase? Or is it really different this time because digital is such an entirely new space? I mean, it is sort of deja vu all all over again, because the robber barons, the oil and gas companies, they all went through this. But what I think is different about digital is it's not a physical product. You release something and it can be a global product within days, like I think we'll discuss with TransferWise later on. So there is something similar because in the end, every industry goes through this regulatory pushback. But because digital and the internet and tech, however you want to define it, is now literally part of our daily lives. I mean, my first thing I do, sadly, when I get up is check my email, right? So this is- You read the playbook, obviously. Of course, of course. Second thing I do is email. Um, (laughs) There is something different here and it's being more pronounced. And this is not to say that it's just the big tech companies that are being affected. Mm. It is the automotive industry, it's the energy sector, it's the publishing sector. Well, even it's the fact that everything is digital exactly. now, where in the digital world, everything is effectively offshore because yep. it just exists in this whole other plane. Exactly. Um, now that you've mentioned TransferWise, we're about to speak to the CEO and the founder of TransferWise, Tavit Henriquez. And he's really interesting in my mind because he's an example of someone who's been very successful in tech from Europe. He was one of the original employees at Skype. Now he's developed this fantastic new business. I'll admit it, I've been a user of it before. What's your take on a company like TransferWise and the role of a country like Estonia in taking Europe digital? I mean, I think Tavit is a great example of what Europe does 
best when it comes to tech. He is an Estonian living in London with a multicultural workforce with, we should say, with US venture capital investment behind him, as well as some Europeans. What's interesting now with Tabit is what happens next? The company's done well to get the investment they have, but now it's a question of making the money and making it work at a scale. And that's purely because of some of the financial uh, regulatory issues that a company like his will have to face, but also trying to get a foothold in the States. He has some good backers who can help him. But again, it is a question of so far, so good. But let's see what happens next. Well, Mark Scott, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. And now we'll hear from the man himself, Tarvit Henriquez, the CEO and founder of TransferWise. A word of warning about the interview with Tarvit Henriquez. It's a little bit noisy at points because we interviewed him in a temporary structure inside the headquarters of the European Council here in Brussels. So you hear a bit of clanking and you hear a bit of rustling because it's not the standard space where you would do a podcast interview. So, Tavit Henriquez, welcome to the latest edition of EU Confidential. We are sitting here in what is almost a sauna in the European Council building and sitting on what could be rocks as cushions. So welcome to the most interesting podcast studio we've had. Um, what's brought you to Brussels today? So I was in Brussels to open the Estonian Dome, which was here at Justius building. Yes, just we call it Just Lips here. Yeah, just so. Lips building uh, <laughs> to celebrate Estonia being the president of the EU for the next six months. But you're here for the particular reason that you founded TransferWise and you were also involved in Skype before that, the most famous Estonian startup. Is that why they got you along today? Well, I think so. But I think, you know, if you think about the dome, and the dome is a virtual reality project which has a 360-degree video and surround sound inside. So it kind of enables you to sit here in Brussels and to feel like you're in Estonia or in Australia. So I think the dome kind of, you know, is maybe a continuation of the Skype journey. And I think also what Estonia stands for quite in many ways, which is to make the world smaller. You know, it kind of enables us to forget some of the borders we have, maybe in terms of distance or in terms of other things. That is a great way to think about it. One of my original questions was going to be, Estonia is a small country, so coming from a small country, do you feel particular responsibilities to promote the country, to make a mark in Europe, to be part of this new community after the Soviet experience? But now you've just made me think of it in a new way, that instead of trying to be bigger, you try and uh, make the world realize that it can be smaller. Yeah, very true, you know, and if, if anything, I rather think about that uh, Estonia has been lucky and uh, gotten many things right, so whether we think about the startup ecosystem, so, you know, clearly Skype was the beginning of it, and there was a fair share of luck involved in, in the fact that Skype was started in Estonia, but, you know, now we look at uh, there is TransferWise, there is Starship, there is Pipedrive, so kind of many global leaders in their own category companies which are coming from Estonia, which I think is super exciting for what is a really tiny country. And besides the kind of the startup ecosystem and the tech ecosystem, it's also really amazing to see what the government is doing in Estonia with your residence, it's a kind of country as a service, you know, country as a platform, 
Senu is exactly. all the kind The government of... is one of the country's biggest export industries now. Yeah, I mean, our e-government system, which mm. uh, I do think has been kind of explored by pretty much every other country in the world. It's the way you live your life in Estonia every day. Like, the way you interact with the state is so, so much different compared to any other country. I did a lot of research when I was younger into new generation, so millennials and younger, and how they interact with government and what it takes to make a state function in the 21st century. People now are so able to do things for themselves. They're so equipped with tools to essentially, you can't always exist without the state, but if you spend your whole life paying for government services, so you're not really dependent in a welfare sense on the state. And if you're equipped with the internet and with so many other networks and, and possibilities to do things on your own these days, unless the state really tries to re-engineer itself, to adapt to that reality, it risks being rejected or ignored or left behind. Is that something you think Estonia is a, a challenge that it's succeeding in? Yeah, I think if any country is going to get there, then I think it would be Estonia. So you can be an e-resident of Estonia today, sitting in Bali and freelancing all over the world. You would do all of the legal stuff through the Estonian e-residency. Then you would use a transferwise borderless account mm -hmm. to collect money from your customers. And uh, you would just kind of, you know, live like a local wherever you are. Tell us about those borderless accounts. I mean, essentially, if I was to do work for someone in Britain or in the US, I could have them pay me for my services into a British bank account or an American bank account, but all through the TransferWise system. Exactly. So when we started TransferWise, we really started it because me and my co-founder, Christo, we were personally frustrated about the way banks were treating us and, you know, what they said wasn't what they did and kind of, you know, a very simple service became mm -hmm. overcharged and underdelivered. Yeah. So now we've come quite some ways. We're moving a billion pounds a month. But so how do you make the money in that process? So we're actually very focused on speed. Mm -hmm. Today, there's a fair chunk of transaction which happens instantly. So there's no interest to be earned that way. The way we make money is very simple and transparent. We have a very simple transaction fee we charge. Mm -hmm. So we put the foreign exchange and transaction fee all into one. Yep. We convert your money as a mid-market rate, which you see on Google, mm -hmm. and charge you a small but transparent fee. Typically, ends up being eight to 10 times cheaper than a bank. And that fee is enough to cover our costs and you know, transfer wise now. Because you don't have that same physical footprint yeah. that a lot of banks yeah. do. In some ways, there is no magic. We have all the same costs that a regular bank has. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to do customer onboarding. We have to pay for liquidity. It's all the same kind of cost items, but we just do all of them in such a more efficient way that altogether we can charge so much less and still have a business which is doubling in size every year and profitable. Pretty and cool. is it? right to say that because you're digital first or you're digital only, it means you can scale really quickly. You were global from Absolutely. day one. You didn't have to start in your local town and then your capital city and then the next country. You could just go, bam, we're global. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you think about millennials, they only have one bank branch and that's a smartphone. Yeah. So your smartphone in your pocket will be the most important bank branch for the rest of your life. And, you know, we've kind of design transfer-wise uh, for a generation of people for whom a smartphone or a computer is the only bank branch they care about. And that's part of the reason why why we've been able to scale so quickly. We're now in 37 countries and you know still just getting started. Mm -hmm. And are there regulatory barriers that you face there? Did any of the banking regulators 
in any of those countries say you can't do this borderless account you can't just issue account numbers without getting all of these special documents signed and so on so i'll get to borderless in a second but mm. i mean we are acting within the world as it is today so we are regulated in every country we're in and that's you know kind of very different experiences in different countries uk has today is the most forward-looking and innovative regulator in the world i mean mm -hmm. it's even i think the only regulator which has the word innovation in its charter Huh. And, you know, the way you deal with regulators in, in UK is very different to some other countries. But we do work with regulators. We tell them, hey, you know, doing things online actually oftentimes is much safer, much better. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a long journey of education that we engage in. But we've had lastly, the regulator in Singapore change the law so that now we can onboard customers online in Singapore, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. Like kind of seeing how mm -hmm. we can we can make the environment better for everyone this way. And while we're thinking of the UK, do you think there's going to be any Brexit consequences for you? Like you're at the cutting edge of one of the biggest industries in the UK. For the time being, you're based in the UK. What does Brexit make you think about? You know, we're very, very pragmatic and maybe coming from our Estonian heritage. So we really think about two things when it comes to Brexit. One is freedom of movement of people. You know, we're, me and my co-founder, we're both immigrants in London. Mm -hmm. Half the people in our London office aren't British born. So having access to the best people in the world is something which is very important for us yeah. and for any growing company. Mm -hmm. And second one is financial regulation and specifically passporting. So yeah. in Europe, we have this wonderful concept of passporting. You get licensed by one regulator in one country. You can offer your services in every member country in Europe. So TransferWise today is we're large enough, you know, in this sense, we could say we're a mature company. If we need to open an office to serve customers in Europe, because we lose rights for passporting, we'll do it and we'll be fine with it. You know, this is part of what we're working on today. And you've got Estonia. You can we always have a, fall we, back on yeah, Estonia. We have Estonia. We also mm -hmm. have an office in Hungary. So yeah. we have choices, you know, we'll survive. The company is headquartered in London and will stay headquartered in London, but will open what, you know, could be a European headquarters yeah. somewhere. And do you have the passport? Are you going to be caught up in this permanent residence issue with the citizens' rights? I don't. So besides the rights that Europe gives me to live in the UK, I have no other okay. rights. So it could be that maybe I have to leave Britain. Okay. Well, that's not good news. Now, as we were walking up here, you were also saying that you basically live out of your backpack. So people think startup, they think glamour, they think billionaire, but a lot of your life you're saying is you're just on the go the whole time in planes, working off laptops, wherever you happen to be. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, you know, tragedy of a global business. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in 37 countries. Plus, you think about where we want to be, that, you know, does mean a lot of travel. We have nine offices around the world today. So, you know, you can obviously say it's a luxury problem, but I do spend an abnormal amount of my time on planes. But I think, you know, in some ways, I think it kind of lines up well with what we were talking about before, you know, work, if we go back, let's go to Japan. So mm -hmm. work used to meant a place and you go to that place every morning at eight and you leave that place every morning at 10 p.m. You do it for 30 years. That's work. I think work now for the, not only for the millennials or the other younger generations, I think for everyone with the right state of mind, work is a state of mind, you know, work, you know, sometimes I do my best work sitting on an airplane, mm -hmm. sometimes in an airport, sometimes in the office, you know, I still, I, still I do, do it in the I shower. I need, I need to have all the other stimuli turned off do you have... and just be able to wander around. And then, you yeah. know, then the thoughts come to me. How do you keep notes in the shower? You That's can't. 
So then you have to you have to tell it to yourself over and over again until you get out of the shower. <laughs> now, who's your favorite figure in the tech world? I think there's something pretty inspiring about people like Elon Musk who can just take multiple hard problems and solve them. But I think you know maybe even more important is actually the people who you worked closely with. So you now I think you can usually learn much more from a person if you have kind of repeated interactions and develop a working relationship. So you know clearly Nicholas Zenstrom, founder of Skype, many people whom I worked with during my Skype journey have probably had a, a pretty big influence on my personal development. Mm-hmm. And is that what's next for you? Would you spin out Nicholas style and set up your own fund or become a mentor in some other way once Transferwise completed its journey? So definitely, I think once, you know, as an individual or company or country, you kind of reach a level where things are a little bit more under control. And I do think it's important job to give back and help others. So, you know, I try to do that now with the limited time that I have, you know, same for TransferWise. And you know, I'm sure I'll be doing more of it in the future. You know, I'm also like, you know, maybe we can view that angel investing is maybe a tiny way of doing it. You know, mm-hmm. if, there is, if there are other entrepreneurs or businesses that I get excited about and I can kind of help them. And, you know, rather than money as angel investor. And it seems like we're at a moment now politically as well where that possibility exists in some ways, where I look at people like Emmanuel Macron or even other small countries, Xavier Bertel in Luxembourg, Charles Michel in Belgium. There could be a 30-year-old running Austria by the end of the year. So you have this new generation of people who seem to get it a bit more digitally. And it's not that people like Angela Merkel don't think she has that bad will when it comes to digital issues. But if you're 60 or 65, it's not intuitive in the way it is for some of these 30, 35, 40-year-old leaders. Do you sense that we're sort of on the brink of being able to really change the integration of digital into public policy? I think definitely true. And I don't think it has to be that you've grown up with a kind of iPhone in your hand, but it's kind of understanding how the world goes and works. Actually, you know, even isn't it ironic that the guy over in America who is an avid user of technology, you know, he's not in his 30s anymore. I don't think age is a limiting factor. What advice would you give to anyone a bit scared to set up their own company, but thinking they have a good idea and wondering, is the startup life the life for me? Just try it. It's kind of ironic. It's a very simple thing. You need to get going. Most people fail by not getting started. I mean, obviously, you know, being an entrepreneur is, is not for everyone, but I think everyone has so much to learn from it. Maybe You'd recommend it anyway. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, we should even make it part of a curriculum that people like students will start student companies. Just to kind we could of give get... everyone 100 euros and tell them, but it's, it's, start it's, a company. It's not about 100 euros. You can think of any student, go open a lemonade stand. Just try, you know, see what it feels to give something as a service, you know, you learn about getting shit done, you learn about what it means to interact with customers. And I think these things are so important in any part of your life in the future. And it it teaches you how to fail, but in a way that won't hurt you. Because, you know, if if something doesn't work in business, you know pretty quickly that it didn't work. Absolutely. And the question is, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Nothing. You lose the 100 euros, but, you know, there are worse things. And, you know, if you are an entrepreneur later in your life, I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? You spend a year trying something, it didn't work, you're going to die of hunger. 
Probably not. Probably not. Now it's time for our Brussels Brains Trust. We're welcoming back Lena Abarus and Alva Finn. Hi, Lena. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Alva. Hi, Alva. Hi. So, it's the Brexit negotiations this week, the first full round of negotiations. Yay. I think that is going to provide us with our very clear EU WTF moment this week. And for me, it really stood out when David Davis, the Brexit negotiator for the UK, swanned into the Berlimont for about five, possibly six minutes tops. They did a photo op. The EU had all of its papers lined up with its negotiators, and it was basically an empty side of the table for the UK. My jaw hit the floor. What about you? Well, Ryan, you know, I think it's nice to see them intimidating the, the European Commission. The, with the, their uh, no papers. Yeah, you know what? Uh, <laughs> we prepared. We, know everything by, we learn everything by heart. It's a simple negotiations. It's not something like very complicated for us to come equipped with thousands and thousands of paper and concept notes and briefings. So I think it's a really interesting tactics to use. And the second thing, usually they use it in really top level negotiations. The one that is the leader, they don't come with a paper prepared. They are coming there to lead, not to read. Wow, that is a curveball I wasn't expecting. Alva, the look on your face suggests you may not agree with Lena's analysis. Yeah, it's very interesting that you find it a strategy. I would think of it more as a complete lack of preparedness and also just a really, not even a basic understanding of what it's going to look like for you to go. I mean, he could have just hung around, even if he's not going to. Surely they had some things to talk about. I do agree, obviously, the lead negotiator isn't the person who sits in the room all the time, but it just doesn't look great. And then it also leads you, the eye away from Brussels, back to what is, frankly, a total mess in the UK. And why is he going back for this vote? What's so important about it when his whole job is Brexit? It just doesn't look good. Optics, optics, optics. And it is the EU WTF of the week. I'm glad that we're talking about it. Well, I'm going to take a bit of an each-way bet on this one because I agree that essentially the UK looks really ridiculous here. Like the only reason that David Davis would leave, if not that table, the city and the building is because either his government is extremely weak or he's more interested in taking Theresa May's job than he is in being the Brexit negotiator. And just leaving Brussels indicates those two things very, very clearly. That said... I'm not sure the UK is worse off by him not being in the room because I can't find a single person in Brussels that thinks he's an intellectual force to reckon with. Mm-hmm. I think that they do really respect the civil servants at UCREP yep. and that it's basically an evenly matched pair of teams uh, once you take Davis and Barnier away from the table. But as soon as you put the two of them in, essentially everyone thinks that Michelle Barnier is better prepared, you know, kind of has more experience in this scenario. Yeah, and how do people know about this? You know, it's really like the EU has been playing this out as the UK doesn't know what's going on, the diplomats don't understand the EU, and I think this just plays into their hands, you know? They don't understand how it should look to the public, and that's really worrying from the UK side. Obviously, there's also the internal thing of, is he gunning for Theresa May's job? And I don't think this is a good way of going around it anyway. And I think that it's really important to understand that no one has done this before. Mm -hmm. So 
In many respects, everyone is making it up as they go along. But a lot of the cards are in the EU's hands because the yeah. clock is now ticking. Yeah. The EU will still be 27 and will still have the same system when that clock stops ticking. It's the UK that has to figure out a whole new way of doing things. Tell us a bit more about what you think is behind this strategy, Lena. Do you think that it's um, to unsettle the EU? Is it to call the EU's bluff and basically say, well, our only card is to <laughs> do nothing until the EU gives in and gets scared? Certainly. I truly believe that it is one of the strategies you come and you just make sure that the person in front of you is wondering. You don't have a paper. You don't have files. Uh, you're coming smiley. You put your hands on the table. It's like a way telling them, look, we're here. We know our business very well. We know what we want. That is really my reading. And this is how I think it really bothers the person in front of you and put them on the offensive side. It's really boss behavior in a way. And I mean that literally, because I'm thinking now about all the times I've tried to negotiate a salary. And it's <laughs> like when your boss comes with that single sheet of paper and is like, here's the number, deal with it. Yeah, but high level negotiations, again, you really don't need the boss or the lead to have lots of paper. Top notch people, I'm sorry to say that, maybe he's not top notch. You don't have to apologize. <laughs> but, but... Uh, but seriously, it doesn't matter if he comes with loads and loads of papers or without any paper. What matters is the outcome. And it's too early to know now the outcomes. Well, let's hope you're right, Lena, because I'm not sure the UK has much else up its sleeve. Yeah. It's just a Trump approach, isn't it? You know? It's like it's the like, analog version of yeah, the Trump tweets. Versus, you know, Clinton always overprepared. We're going to leave you with that image in your mind, listeners, of Hillary Clinton on the EU side <laughs> and Donald Trump on the UK side. And that is going to give us a very fun-filled yeah. Brexit season in the months to come. And so now it's time for a quick EU thumbs up moment. I think this is where I shut my mouth and let the ladies of the Brains Trust take over because it seems like there has indeed been some progress on these EU roadworks that caused me to threaten to eat my laptop mm -hmm. if they were actually finished on time. We arrived safe and sound in one piece to political building without any incidents, neither with Italians, neither with any other nationalities, no bikers, no pedestrians. And you can just enter political building. But there are still some roadworks. It's, it's not completely done, is it? But you can walk even in heels, Ryan, so it's okay. Well, you will I will bear laptop, that in mind next week, But Lina. it's about time that you eat your laptop. Improvement. Yeah, a vast was, improvement. Bravo, Brussels. Maybe they, you have some, some listeners in the Belgian... I don't know. That's it. It was the yeah. people power of the EU confidential yeah. audience. Thank you guys for yeah. clearing the way for safe walking. Um, although I do notice, Alva, that you almost walked into a pole on the yeah. way into the building. <laughs> well, I'm glad I missed that. It would have been embarrassing. Well, it was embarrassing, but a near miss. There you go. You okay. can get rid of the roadworks, but you can't do anything <laughs> about clumsy people. Yet Ryan <laughs> is still going to eat his laptop. Yeah, we'll, we'll see about that at the end of the summer. <laughs> Just in time for the Brexit negotiations. <laughs> Clean it up. Now it's time for our Dear Politico advice session. And listeners, I've got to tell you, this week's one is even more concerning than the ones we've been dealing with in recent weeks. Now, I should point out that we haven't actually met the person who wrote us this email, so I guess there's always the element of not knowing all of the details in this situation. But you'll understand when we read out the situation why we're concerned. Dear Politico, I am an MEP assistant at the European Parliament. I am faced with a dilemma that I would like to get your opinion on. My boss has offered me a salary of €3,000 per month. However, 
My boss has asked me that I pay a portion of 1,000 euros back to him in cash on a monthly basis. He says that due to the tax system and the kind of contract I am on, this would be beneficial for both of us. He's asked me to keep this from my colleagues in the office. And as far as I'm aware, has not asked the same from my other colleagues. I am struggling with this on a moral level as I do not want to be disrespectful and lose my job, but I don't find this morally correct. It's not why I joined <clears throat> politics. Nick. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm speechless Talk about again. a rock and a hard place, Ryan. That's... Alva, dive in. What, what would you do if your politician boss told you to hand back a third of your salary or basically you might lose your job? Well, I have to say that I have heard that this happens. I heard previously from someone that sometimes it happens particularly for MEPs who can make the comparison with how much you would earn at home and it's a lot lower. And so here, we're talking about the lower income yeah, countries and, where and salaries here, here are very high compared to those countries. Yeah, here obviously 2000 would be really a lot to them. However, it is not a lot in Brussels. It is not a lot for an MEP. So I think, Nick, I think a lot of MEPs assistants would laugh at the fact that you were making 2000 and all the things you are going to have to be doing. It's a very stressful job. I'm going to take a bit of a Machiavellian approach here. This is probably what I would do. I don't know how it reflects on me, but I would maybe don't even agree to it. Just kind of, I don't know, nod along. And then I would not give him that money back. And if he threatens you with it, I would threaten to go public, to be honest, because I think you're in a really difficult situation. If you refuse, maybe he's going to hire someone else and do the exact same thing. This is a very distressing email. Lena, what do you advise Nick? Well, Ryan, there are two things that uh, drew my attention here. First, that Nick doesn't believe or he's not aware if he's doing the same thing with his other colleagues. So insinuating that possibly they have discussed this issue among his other colleagues in the office. So if this really happened and took place and they feel many of them, they are uncomfortable, I do believe that they have an option to just leave. Why would they be manipulated and under such a horrible boss who's taking money from them illegally? I mean, this is a criminal act, and I cannot really verify if this really happens, but seriously, this is like pure, pure, pure corruption. Well, the illegal aspect is one we should dive into, but I also want to point out that this seems like a very classic abuse situation. And what happens with people who are abused is it's not easy or obvious to those people that they should collectively get together and stop the abuse. A power dynamic is at play where, I mean, I would honestly suspect based on what I know that this is happening to multiple people in the office. They're yeah. all being told, you can't talk about this, you'll be in trouble. Yeah. I mean, and that is what people so being it, abused get told to be afraid of their position. So he's bullying them and I think there must be a way that they bully him back and they threaten him or they go to human resources and if they go to the media, I believe this MEP will be like that done. I think they are in a more powerful position than the MEP and I think that absolutely they shouldn't accept this sort of manipulation. Yeah, I was going to say as well, if you did want to go public about this, it's important to have proof. This sounds like a clever MEP, but if you have emails, if you have texts, and I would probably record him saying... Yes, I mean, it's it's not clear exactly what sort of court situations where you could use that material, but as a journalist, it would be very useful to hear tape recordings or have a written trail in order to pursue this as a news story. Mm. But seriously, please do not accept it. Okay, we hope that's useful to you, Nick, and please let us know if you do take action and tell us what the results of that were, and we'll be happy to advise again in the future if there's more elements to this story. 
Alba Finn, thank you for joining us. Lena Abarus, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. See you, Ryan. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of EU Confidential. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, we'd love you to spread the podcast wherever you heard this, whether it's your social media account, emailing your friends and colleagues, or giving us a review. Tell us exactly what you think, and we'll keep making it better and better. And whatever you're doing this summer, we hope you're relaxing, that you do get a break, and we'll keep this podcast up. So keep an eye out for the next episode of EU Confidential. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.